Welcome to Corvette Today, the podcast that talks about everything Corvette, with your host Steve Garrett, MC and DJ at one of the largest Corvette weekends in the country, Corvette Fun Fest, president of the Corvette Club of Kansas City, Missouri, and radio disc jockey at the number one radio station in Kansas City for over 40 years. Here's Steve Garrett. Thanks for listening to Corvette Today, the podcast that talks about everything Corvette. I'm your host, Steve Garrett. I appreciate you tuning in. You can listen to Corvette Today on all podcast platforms like iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Anchor.fm, also on Pandora, Stitcher, Audible, and many, many more. You can also listen on your smart device. Just say Alexa or Hey Google, play the podcast called Corvette Today, and you're connected. Also, visit the Corvette Today website. It's www.corvettetodaypodcast.com. You can also sign up for Corvette Today notifications, updates, and information at corvettetoday.ck.page. And don't forget, join the Corvette Today Facebook group. We have over 1,900 members right now. I'd love to have you as a member as well. First, let me thank our flagship sponsors of Corvette today, midenginecorvetteforum.com. If you'd like to join this new vibrant forum that focuses on the new mid-engine C8 Corvette, it's free to join this friendly community. You'll find a lot of fellow Corvette enthusiasts like yourself at midenginecorvetteforum.com. Also, a shout-out to canadiancorvetteforum.com, welcoming Corvette enthusiasts from around the world. My guest on Corvette today is a self-made, self-taught car guy. He taught himself how to be a fabricator. He taught himself how to be a sketch designer. And he built his business from scratch, from the ground up. His show on Motor Trend Television called Bitchin' Rides is one of the most popular and longest-running shows of its kind on television today. And I've got a feeling he's got a soft spot in his heart for Corvettes, too. Mr. Dave Kindig from Kindigit Design. Dave, welcome to Corvette today. Uh, thanks for having me, Steve. What a wonderful opportunity this is because you're right. I'm a little bit nutty on the Corvette stuff. so <laughs> I love that. And we'll get into that here in, in segment number three. But I want to start with your early years, Dave. Yeah. You actually like cars from a very early age, but drawing cars wasn't your first love. What was the thing that originally got you going? You know, what's funny is uh, I remember being in my backyard and I'd always hunt for little potato bugs and prey mantises and grasshoppers. And, of course, you know, at that age... I was like, I don't know, four or five years old and pulling the legs off of stuff and thinking, oh, I could really make this one really cool. If I put these legs on that one, of course, you can't do that. So I was drawing it, but then I realized that all of those renderings would be pretty much for nothing because you can't make the insects. So I went to my second love, which was cars. And uh, <laughs> I actually, it was funny as uh, I remember the very first time a car was drawn in front of me, my mom was wonderful and she still is, she's still around. And I remember that we would used to play a game where we would draw one little line and you'd pass it to the next person. They continued the drawing by only adding one line to the drawing and it was back and forth. But she used to do this one that was the front of a Volkswagen Beetle just because it was kind of cute and whatever. And you have the little arches and so forth of body reveals in the hood. So it was very identifiable. And so I remember I got good at drawing the front of a Volkswagen Beetle, oddly enough, at about five years old. And Legos and Hot Wheels, I just got excited about cars and kind of never really looked back. I mean, it evolved into where I'm at today. Hey, you got an engineering degree in Hot Wheels now, don't you? <laughs> That's my design degree is from Hot Wheels. Engineering came from Legos. <laughs> there you go. There you go. And Dave, like I said, you're a self-taught artist. Talk about how you got going into drawing and how that progressed into what you're doing today. 
Yeah, you know, really the drawing thing was kind of just an escape. My wife, Charity, and I have been together now, oh, geez, 31 years, 29 years married this year. Mazel tov. Thank you. And we were very poor in our first apartment. Our first Christmas tree was a little fig tree that I think I got from an office that was being thrown away. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so, you know, we'd go into Vern's videos or whatever and get a video to watch for the night and whatever and watch a movie. And I would actually sit there with a pad of paper and, and draw and color it and just kind of make something cool off of the top of my head. And then I'd end up actually hanging it in the office that I worked at, uh, at High Performance Coatings, HPC, which I worked at for eight and a half years. So that's really where the renderings were kind of just hanging in there. And I remember that we had the Rod and Custom Americruise come through town. I want to say this was about 96, 97. Okay. It was funny as we had Boyd Coddington was there, Boyd Jr. was there, Bobby Alloway. I mean, there were some big names. Ray Bander, uh, oh gosh, Ray from Hot Rod Magazine. I can't remember his last name. Baskerville? Yes. It was Baskerville. Yes. Anyway, there was all of these big names. And of course, I'm just this kid that's running this warehouse and really into cars. And my Volkswagen's all chopped up and sitting out in the parking lot that I drive back and forth to work. That was pretty radical. You know, we're sitting there having barbecue brisk and Ed Cape and working for Arizona Speed Marine for Jim Schaffner looks into the picture window of my office and he says, Hey, Dave, who does those drawings? I said, Those are mine. I just do those kind of as a hobby. He goes, those aren't bad. You ever thought about doing those for like magazines and stuff? I said, I'd love to. I design other people's graphics and stuff. I just never had had the opportunity. Well, it wasn't that long after that. He actually gave me the opportunity to design a 69 Camaro that was going to be in Super Chevy and Chevy High Performance. Wow. That was pretty cool. And then Brian Pride, their master fabricator there, said, hey, can you do a 64 Chevelle for me? It's an SS and I'm doing a 502 and all this stuff. I want it yellow. I did that one. It also was featured. And then Jim Schaffner says, hey, what's the chances of you designing up our 99 Chevy Silverados? We're going to do 99 limited edition Arizona Speed Marine SSs, and it has the Budnick wheels, and it has the ground effects from Wings West, and it has the Trends billet grills inserts and stuff. And I said, sure. So I did that. It was in trucking and Super Chevy. Wow. Very shortly after that, I had met a gentleman by the name of Dave Hall. Dave Hall is the owner of one of my favorite nomads ever built, the Nomad that was finished by Steve's Auto Restoration up in Oregon. Anyway, I did the original designs for that when it was being built at Arizona Speed Marine, and the car ended up changing shops and going up to Steve's Auto Restoration to be perfected. They changed a lot of the exterior stuff, which I really was interested in seeing happening, but Dave Hall at the time, I wasn't really selling him anything that I was going to be doing physically on the car. So right. in a nutshell, basically, he took it up there, but the interior design stayed pretty much true to what I had originally designed. And Dave Hall and I are still great friends to this day. We talk every once in a while when I see him, and he's just a super nice guy, but to get that opportunity to put my foot into the big time in that respect was just, I mean, that was a perfect timing for me. And I got the confidence to figure out that after eight and a half years of high performance coatings, I probably ought to leave there and go draw cars and take care of my family a little bit more. That's an amazing story. Yeah. I, after eight and a half years, I cashed in my 401k at high performance coatings for a whopping $4,800. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> Started business in the garage that I built behind my house. I outgrew that in two and a half months. We moved into the same building that I'm actually in into a 4,500 square foot suite. And I signed a five-year lease, and within two and a half years, I'd outgrown it. Luckily, there was a, the other end of the building was 9,000 square feet and was available, so they allowed me to cancel my lease and sign a new five-year lease for double the square footage. Another four years later, the middle of the building, because there's six suites here at 9,000 square feet each, basically, I took that over four years later. A couple years later, I took over the rest of the building, 27,000 square feet. At the end of 2015, I bought the building. Amazing. That's the short version.
That's the short version, too. That's an incredible story. What a great break, Dave. I mean, that is just something that everybody dreams about, getting to draw for magazines and publications, moving to cars, and then starting your own business. Right. Well, you know, when I was self-taught on doing graphics, I was always into stuff that was lowered, and I was intrigued with airbags and and that type of stuff. So I kind of took on doing some of that stuff, doing graphics on other people's builds from other shops and designing them and doing design work for people outside of the state. It was kind of funny as it snowballed so fast. It was like I marketed the way to have the essence of everybody outside the state thought I was a huge deal designer and builder and and graphic artist in Utah. And then everybody in Utah thought I was a big deal outside of Utah. And so (laughs) one, one fed the other and I was like, well, I'll see if I can get some time maybe next week to do that job. Then, of course, scrambling to get anything I could, but there were so many trials and errors, and I made it sound like 22 years had just slipped on by and it's been warm and fuzzy the whole time. But There's been so many challenges. I've learned about paying your taxes on time. I've learned about taking on partners and investors. I've learned a lot of really hard lessons, but I've survived it. That's amazing. And you taught yourself fabrication too, which is just an art in and of itself. Talk about how you got that going and starting right from the garage of your mom's house. Yeah, it's actually, it wasn't my garage or my mom's house because we never had a garage. I grew up with no dad, no formal training on anything. And basically, in a nutshell, I would go and watch my grandfather work in his garage. He was a sheet metal specialist and not in the automotive industry. He would make ducting and custom sheet metal at a custom sheet metal shop for industrial applications. And so but he had his own little inventions. He had a product called Tips Tarp Ties. And basically, it was a tapered sleeve that you could smash a tarp to tie down your load basically between the two pieces, and then it had a little hole in it to strap it down. It was really ingenious. Then he got ripped off. But, man, my grandpa could fix anything. He could weld anything. He could do anything. And so we were quite close, and and I really enjoyed spending time with him. But, of course, he wasn't really a car guy. My stuff that I kind of learned was actually from when I got into the Volkswagen Club. I'd actually hang out with different people in the Volkswagen Club, or we'd go to a club meeting. And I'd be at somebody's house that knew how to do metal shaping or welding or paint or some of that stuff. And I would just stand back and watch. As I was watching this stuff, it was something I was just kind of mimicking the motions that they would go through and then figuring it out. So when I had the opportunity to get a welder in front of me, I was able to figure out how to weld. My first metal shaping tools were quite simple, a borrowed hammer, a little bench that was about 12 inches tall that looked like a picnic bench. But I built that to remodel my first house. I ended up flipping that thing over, and it was so hammered on, and it got quite hard. I was able to use that to metal shape, and I figured out rubbing a dolly on the back of something was almost as good as having an English wheel. Wow. And I'd spend just hours and hours just banging on stuff and welding it and fixing it and grinding it and making sure that it was perfect and moving on. And as I was able to afford better tools or borrow better tools, I just kind of kept expanding my range of talents. That's pretty amazing. What a story. And now Ken Diggett Design is a family affair. You were born and raised in Salt Lake City, and now your whole family works in the business. Well, most of my family. My son, Drew, actually works for Boeing, oddly enough. Never really took the bug of cars. He likes cars, but my daughter is full throttle in it. And of course, my wife, Charity, we're quite happy. She loves cars. She grew up in a car family. Grandpa and grandma are into cars. And in that respect, yeah, we were quite lucky to be able to spend that amount of time with our family. My daughter's so talented. Bailey is in charge of all of the marketing, product development for our apparel, the social media stuff. She does a good bulk of that. It's great. That's fantastic. Dave, let's take a quick break. And in segment number two, we're going to talk more about Ken Diggett Design on Corvette Today. 
VetFinders.com is the Internet's original Corvette classified ads website with classified ads starting at just $25. And every ad runs until your Corvette is sold. If you're in the market for a Corvette, VetFinders.com has over 500 Corvettes for sale from all around the USA and Canada and covering all eight generations. Visit VetFinders.com, the Internet's destination for buying and selling Corvettes. That's V-E-T-T-E Finders.com. Hey, honey, are you awake? Mm, I am now. I can't sleep. Since turning 50, I keep dreaming of a red door and a blue door, somehow knowing there are only choices for retirement. Okay. Through the red door, we outlive our money. We have to rely on our kids. We're stuck on a fixed income. It's terrifying. Yeah, that would suck. But through the blue door, our money outlives us. We retire on our terms. Our kids stay our kids, not our caretakers. We make work optional. Yes, that's much better. That's what I want to, but what do we do? We call True Wealth and Company at 913-653-8783. They specialize in helping successful people make work optional. They're our fiduciary Blue Door personal wealth managers. Hey, where are you going? It's 3 a.m. I can't sleep. I'm going to check out True Wealth and Company online at retirewithtrue.com. That Blue Door is going to be our retirement. 913-653-8783. Visit us online at retirewithtrue.com. Investment advice offered through True Wealth and Company, LLC, a registered investment advisor in the state of Kansas. And now, back to Corvette Today with your host and my husband, Steve Garrett. Hey, thanks for listening to Corvette Today. I'm your host, Steve Garrett. Today on the podcast, we have Dave Kindig from Kindigit Design. The show is Bitchin' Rides on Motor Trend TV. Dave, in the second segment, let's talk more about the show and talk about the shop. You put your own special spin on cars. I know that you like to keep the traditional body lines of the car, but you modernize them kind of like a resto mod and improve them. Talk about your design and your approach to each car. Well, sure. You know, my approach really is quite simple. I like nice things. And what I like to do is I like to find stuff that has a lot of art to it, which, of course, a Corvette or a 32 Ford Roadster or something like that has the potential of being the coolest car you'll see that day at the car show. Just kind of depends on what you do with it. What I've always been most interested in doing, and at least my style lines across the board, is I like to have the car still look like what it started as. But the fit and finish has to be perfect, you know, much more like something that would have been built like a brand new Mercedes that's built all computerized by computers and everything's been designed and perfected. The gaps are perfect and so forth. And so that to me is really what shows the quality of the car. But of course, you're using that classic design that was the original body. Every car can be a little bit different in the sense that I try and build everything to, of course, the the person that's paying for it. I want to build it to their taste. So I'll ask questions and usually within five minutes of kind of discussing what their favorite colors are, what they like about the type of car that we're going to build for them. I'm already driving that car in my imagination up and down the street. I already know what the contrast from the interior and exterior is. I know the stance, the wheels, the smell, the sound. I have all of those things viscerally going through my mind, and it's very easy for me to convey that back to the customer of what I'm understanding the build's going to be by simply putting 12 hours or so on the board and drawing up the car and showing them visually what the car's going to look like when we're done. They've got to enjoy that because the man behind Kindigit Design is the one that they work with to really design their car and make it their dream car. 
Exactly. And then it's up to me to convey what we're doing to all of the talent that we have in the shop here to make sure that they're all able to build what we're going to do. And of course, we can pretty much accomplish anything at this point. We've got so much equipment and so much talent and experience. And what's really cool about that is even on the fly, I always have a Sharpie on me. I can grab a piece of chipboard or the floor or anything and just go, hey, no, I want that to kind of come around like this. And I'll draw three-dimensionally what they're working on right there. Or I'll take a drawing down to them and show them exactly what the engine base is supposed to look like. And of course, I leave a little bit of creativity up to them in engineering. I don't need to tell them where every seam of the engine panels need to be. Give them kind of a style line and then I let them just run with it so they have the ability to kind of create and make everything function and look good like what I've drawn. They've got to love that because they get to put their own touch of creativity into the build as well. So that's really cool. Exactly. And I've always had a policy here, Steve, that we all succeed or we all fail. That is the essence of making the perfect team is if you have somebody that isn't quite able to do everything that everybody else is and they may be struggling, when the team takes on everybody as part of how we make things happen, then it's very easy to have somebody that will reach back and, and help somebody up the last couple of steps of the ladder or the stairs to make sure that we're all arriving at the same time. And when we go to build another one, then they have that additional strength. So cross-training, advancing any of the education that we need, playing around with new equipment, being trained on that equipment, having the opportunity to create new tooling. The technology in our industry right now is just going so far above and beyond what you could have even imagined 20 years ago. Yeah. You know, we've got a Faro 3D scanner. I can scan a car in, have all that data and information and real measurements in the computer and develop a brand new body based on that. And then 3D print molds. I mean, it's just, it's crazy. It is crazy, but I applaud you, Dave, because what a great environment for an employee to work in. They get a chance to put their own creativity in, and they're part of a team that loves coming to work every single day. Now, how bad can it be? You're building somebody's dream car every day. Yeah, you got to love it. you got to love it. <laughs> it's criminal. We're getting actually paid for this because uh, it's so much fun. You know, I've almost got a six-year backlog. I can pick and choose whatever cars we're going to build. I don't build anything that we're not interested in. I don't have to take anything in off of the street. The worst mistake anybody could make is to pull up with a trailer and just drop a car off to me because they'll be taking it with them. I don't have anywhere else to put one. No doubt. We like to plan everything out. I don't want the cars in our way. I like a big, open, clean shop. I like it organized, not cluttered. My shop is probably one of the most open and high-end shops, I think, in the country, honestly. I've got wonderful GFS, two big, full downdraft baking booths. Wow. One set up with a carbon filtration system, so I can actually still shoot solvent-based paint here. I've got a custom prep deck for three spots. And the organization here is awesome. We have so much great help with our products. You know, of course, we have our own paint line from uh, Axel Nobel. It's called Modern Classic by Kindig. Very cool. And it's based on the Sickens technology, which is a really high-end European. And our clears are super clear, super thick. The clarity of the colors, the depth, I mean, the, the process is awesome. And no orange peel either, right? Well, you know, uh, that's so funny that you say that because the amount of clear coat that we put on these show cars, I mean, we'll put five real heavy, heavy coats. And so you can tend to get a little bit of texture, but the fact that we go back and we block all of that paint down, all of the clear coat down to where it's perfectly glass smooth, that's where the amount of time and, and effort comes in. But boy, when it's done and the gapping's perfect and the panel matching from doors to fenders to quarters is all perfect. It's so funny when I look at a car, I'm so spoiled after 22 years being in this industry and, and being surrounded by such talent that when I look at a car, I don't look at the paint job. I look at the surface, at the reflection of everything around the paint job, around the car. And if there's lights up on the ceiling that are running the full length of the room and they go straight from panel to panel to panel with no deviation, 
you know that somebody spent the time and made that thing perfect. Absolutely right. Now, you talked about it. It's about a six-year wait for someone to get their car in. How long does a traditional build time for any specific car? It can average, but anywhere from nine to maybe 12 months. I mean, some of them have taken up to 14. Maybelline was a big, big project. And of course, that one, it seemed like it took forever because we custom built every single last panel on that car. Wow. And it's such a big car. Yes. You know, and of course, if you're not familiar with that one, that's the one with the Ryan Faulkner V12 with twin Magnuson superchargers, 1,000 horsepower, 1,000 foot-pounds of torque. And we built that car back into a unibody utilizing a Morrison frame, full air ride, and, I mean, just every little last piece of that car, which is a very rare car. It's very hard to find any parts. And we had to, of course, look for some pieces for restoration. But one of the more challenging cars, certainly one of the bigger projects that we've ever done. That's amazing. I've seen that show. That was absolutely incredible. Dave, how many cars do you usually have in the works at any given point in time? So I used to say 16 to 22. And actually, we've been building up more equipment, I guess is the best way to describe it. Well, between the CNC room that I've just built, we have a special project area that's blocked off that's uh, not open to anybody. And I can't talk about that one, but <laughs> but we've got a 3D printing room now. I just put in a Mustang Dyno, which is going to be awesome. We haven't actually run it yet, but it is all now up and running. We actually got a big stack of cars waiting to get on it. Awesome. Once we're done filming our season finale, which we're still working on, that finale will actually be a week from tomorrow. We'll film the finale for season seven. What's the date on that? That is on Wednesday the 23rd, I believe. Okay. King of Custom, and I don't even have a calendar in here. It's okay. <laughs> That's all good. My calendar's last year's. I just looked at it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, yep. Pretty high tech around here. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Dave, let's talk more about the TV show, how you got started, how Bitch and Rides came into being, and just in case people aren't familiar with it, how many seasons have you had, and talk about how long it takes to film an episode. Oh, sure. Well, actually, we'll go right to the beginning. Funny little thing, we were building some pretty cool cars. I got hit up by Dennis Gage. He was actually a guest at the UVU car show at Thanksgiving Point here in Utah. It was funny as I had the 37 Chevy Caballo Rosa of my Kesses, and I also had Wild Bill's 32. And it's a little hemi-powered black steel body hot rod that looks like a cartoon. It's super cool. So anyway, I was sitting there cleaning the cars, and I see Dennis Gage walking with his head down, trying not to make eye contact with anybody. And I know why he has to do that. <laughs> yep. I've, I've learned from him, actually. <laughs> Sometimes just keeping your head down is okay. Yes. Anyway, he's just scooting across the grass. I'm polishing up this 37 Chevy. He sees the gauge cluster from the passenger side, and he just stops in his tracks. He backs up. Dennis bends down, looks through the passenger seat, and we had built this really cool gauge cluster. We actually built it with half-inch beveled glass. We made our own frame around it that was polished, made our own backdrop, loaded it with autometer gauges. And I had a friend that did membrane switches, printing for soft pads, like on your microwave, little soft keypads. Right. But it'll have translucent color abilities. So this was all basically put together. And he says, is this you? And I said, one of them. He says, where did you get that gauge? I said, we custom built it. And he stood back again. He wound on his mustache, looked at the car front to back again. This is a pretty serious car, he says. And I said, well, I'd like to think so. He <laughs> goes, would you mind interviewing with me? I said, I'd love to. So about an hour and a half later, golf cart comes over and his film crew, and we sat there and we talked about the 37. And when we got done filming, because I was very comfortable with that, yeah, we got done filming. He sat there and, and shot the breeze for another hour. Just kind of hanging out. He's a great friend still to this day. That's actually one of my very first chances on national television. There was also low car TV from a couple of different car shows. There was SEMA coverage. 
And then I had the opportunity to do Car Crazy wow. with our white Mustang, which was just super rad. And of course, the Boss Mustang is one I always refer to when I say the Mustang because it was one of the most popular cars that we had built for the very beginning. Absolutely. Dennis Zerule, the producer of Hot Rod Television, had been a huge fan of that car. And he hit me up to put me on Hot Rod TV in a couple of different episodes with the car. And so kind of profiling me as a designer, builder, as well as the guy that came up with that Mustang, he had me in a couple of different episodes. And then we had the opportunity to build a car for Apollo Anton Ono, wow. which was, of course, the Olympic speed skater and Dancing with the Stars champion right. and overall super nice guy. He wanted to build the ultimate 64 Cadillac convertible. And so we built one for him to debut at the SEMA show at the kickoff breakfast. And it just so happened that's where we were doing the reveal to him for Hot Rod Television. So we had an episode of that. It was the biggest pain in the butt ever (laughs) because the film crew was out of California. And so actually most all of the content that we did, we shot for one day at the beginning or the middle of the build with Apollo. Then we got pretty close to the end of the build. They came back for a day and a half. And this was literally the day before we were leaving for the SEMA show. And it had to be there for the Tuesday morning breakfast at the main hotel. Well, the problem with a film crew being from out of town is they need everything kind of set up and then disassembled again so that we can quickly move through getting the different shots and different camera angles and so forth. So here we are actually in a full throttle death row trying to be finished with the car so we don't have egg on our face and don't make the SEMA show. And yet we're taking parts of the car back off so that they can film it. And finally, I've had to put my foot down. I was like, hey, guys, we're not going to get this done if we don't finish. So you just need to capture what you can at this point. We got it done, two hours of sleep, on the road, get down to Vegas, and put it right into the ballroom for the breakfast the next day. That's amazing. Sketchy. Yeah, that was really cool. And then to shorten up the story here, because obviously people are probably snoozing off. But uh... <laughs> No, this is great. Keep going. Keep going. So, yeah, well, thank you. So anyway, long story short, we'd been guests on 13 other episodes of different TV shows and different opportunities. And we're kind of still really trying to make a name for ourselves. And we're competing with a lot of ISCA cars nationally. We get the opportunity. My good friend Rick White called me up that owned Fusion IO at the time. And he says, Dave, have you ever heard of the Futurelander? Now, we had already built them a little 23-window 63 bus that was really cool. The Fusion IO bus was super awesome. Actually, I'm taking that to Barrett this March. Nice. And going to sell it for the new client. But he says, have you ever heard of a GM Futurelander? And I said, actually, I was at Barrett-Jackson when the first one sold to Ron Pratt for $4.2 million. I said, yeah, I'm very familiar with it. Well, at least I know what they are. Anyway, he found one back in Michigan. He says, would you and Kevin mind? I'll fly you guys out there, take a look at it and see if it's worth restoring. And then I'll make a deal on it and we'll have you guys restore it. And I was like, cool. So we went out there, checked it out, gave him the thumbs up. He started negotiating to get it. And my marketing director, I said, you know, we ought to put a blast out that we're doing this thing. She did. And it ended up on the desks of Bob Scanlon and David Lee, which were at Speed Channel beforehand and had just went to Discovery and started up Velocity. And they're like, okay, we're familiar with this Kindig kid building all these high-end hot rods. What the heck does he have any business messing around with one of these future liners? And so anyway, oddly enough, they reached out to us because everybody always has – I mean, I guess at the time, there was always somebody with an idea for a TV show, and they'd throw emails and letters and being pitched all the time. And they usually just – they want to search out their own stuff. They don't usually have anything drop on their lap. But when our name came up in the future liner, the interest was there. And so they said, hey, would you mind if we send a company out to do a sizzle reel? We would just want to see what your shop looks like. We want to see if, you know, how you guys react and see how the build is and see if it would be something that maybe we talk about doing a show. And I said, sure. So they sent down Fisher Productions from Park City, which is about 25 miles east of us. Right. And they loved the layout of the shop. 
We've got 25-foot ceilings. There's lots of mezzanines in that that they can get upper angles. The guys and gals that work for us are awesome. We have a lot of fun in and out of work. And so really it was kind of a natural thing. And they said, you know what, we'd like to put you under contract. And so we made sure it worked for everybody and went for it. Now, how many seasons have you had of Bitch and Rides? So Bitch and Rides, we are finishing up season seven. What's funny is we film three to five days a week all year long. Wow. <laughs> but what's cool is Fisher Productions, those guys, it's the same core group that was here seven, eight years ago. No kidding. So they know not to touch the cars. Don't set your camera on the hood. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff. And what's really funny is, and I'll tell you a story in a second here, but it's really cool that they have the respect for the shop and they understand that this stuff takes time. And so we overlap seasons. We'll usually start, in fact, I think we started filming season eight vehicles clear back in June or July of last year. Wow. So, because these vehicles take a long time, my customers paying for that vehicle, not the production company, not the network. Yes. So, I got to give them their money's worth. And of course, when the TV show's done being filmed and it's been seen and whatever, they have to still be able to enjoy the car and have it not fall apart and stuff. I mean, it's very important to make sure that the quality is there from start to finish. That stuff will definitely take a lot longer than most people think. They're like, well, how come you can only build 10 cars in a year? Because <laughs> like, well, we put 4,000 hours in each car. <laughs> right, right. What was that story you were going to tell? So the story, the very first, so I said, yeah, let's do this TV deal. And they brought a producer, and I won't mention his name, out of L.A. He came in, and he was one of these weird dudes that would, like, put his fingers up like a square and, like, looking around like, oh, yeah, camera angle there. You know, just like a big shot. And I was like, that's cool. You know what? I figured this is what I have to go through if this is what I'm going to do a TV deal. (laughs) So we start, and we walk all the way through the shop. And every time he asked me a question, he'd cut me off and not let me finish answering the question because he was doing this big Hollywood thing. The last place we came up was into the showroom, and there was about $2.5 million of the show cars on my showroom floor. And he put his hand on every car and wiped it down the thing going, I cannot believe how smooth and clean. And he touched every single car and scratched the hell out of every paint job in my showroom. Oh, my God. And we got done. And I've always been one of those people that has that. I don't have that switch that clicks off and says, hey, will you get your damn hand off of that, please? You know, I just don't (laughs) do that. I figure people are adults. They should know better. And, of course, this is my potential with my future producer. So I didn't say anything. And he walked out to get in the car, and the fella from Fisher Productions, which is no longer there, he says, so uh, what do you think of so-and-so? I said, not a car guy. He goes, yeah, he's kind of a dumbass film guy. And I said, yeah, I've never seen anybody actually scratch every single car in the showroom all in one sweep. He goes, are you kidding me? I was like, dude, I'm good. I think I just came to my senses. <laughs> they negotiated whether you even give him a ride back to the airport or not. He got fired in the parking lot. Oh, my God. And then later on, they found me the right producer. So Nick Maher is our producer, and that's the next guy they brought in here when we kind of, you know, they apologized and we got back to talking about doing everything. And They brought Nick in, and Nick was the funniest thing. He walked around. He had his hands behind his back the whole time. <laughs> and if they weren't behind his back, they were in his pockets. And we got done, and I started chuckle and we really hit it off and i brought him up in my office and i said hey man you can relax (laughs) (laughs) i said i like you i said let's work together i said i'll tell you what you can touch and what you can't touch it was great because that camaraderie nick and i get along so well and of course kevin and nick we're just like the three musketeers and they've got a wonderful crew at fisher productions we really enjoy building the cars and capturing it we've had so many fun trips outside of utah and filming in like Ohio and some of the other states. We've just had a blast with them. So I'm surprised he didn't come with white gloves, Dave. <laughs> well, Steve, that insinuates that you're going to touch something. It doesn't. <laughs> well, that's true. He's probably smarter just keeping his hands behind his back or in his pocket. Exactly. Yeah. 
Bitchin' Rides is seen globally. You're a global superstar. How many countries is Bitchin' Rides shown in? So we're in 196 countries. Wow. Currently, right now, it's a huge deal. I mean, some of the opportunities that we've had, I mean, like I say, if you had told me, you know, I was 28 when I started this business, and I'll be 50 this weekend on the 6th. If you had told me I'd be where I'm at right now 20 years later, I would have said, nah, there's no way. I mean, I've been to, I don't know, I should probably have dual citizenship between Canada and here, to be honest (laughs) with you. (laughs) I've been to Canada so many times, and I've got so many great friends up there, and there's so many great car shows, and J.F. Lanier's a good friend of mine. I went to a car show with him in his area up in Canada last, or I'm sorry, the year before last. No, we didn't do anything last year, but just had such a great time. And I miss going to car shows, to be honest with you right now. I think it's all coming back, but it was pretty cool to tell me that I'd be in Finland with my daughter. No way. Yeah. And I took Will to Sweden the year before that. My son, Drew, turned 18 on an international first-class flight to Norway. Wow. We had such a great time. That kid drank me under the table. Because <laughs> you can drink at 18 there, so. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. That's yeah. great. 196 countries. It's crazy. Yeah. That's amazing. It's awesome. I always jokingly say it's always nice to find out you don't suck. That's right. Yeah. I suck less. That's exactly (laughs) right. (laughs) Well, buddy, happy birthday on February 6th. We're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to talk Corvettes with Dave Kindig on Corvette Today. American Hydrocarbon, your one-stop shop for custom interior, exterior, and engine bay items for your C4 through C8 Corvette. We can help you create a custom look for your Corvette with carbon fiber or 10 different color patterns and styles. We've served customers in over 28 countries all around the world. Whether it's a custom-made engine cover for your new C8 mid-engine Corvette or custom-made C4 interior upgrades, American Hydrocarbon can help you transform your Corvette into a best-in-class show car. Our products have been featured in VET and Corvette magazines, so give us a call. 813-476-5638. That's 813-476-5638. Visit our website at AmericanHydrocarbon.com or email us at pat at AmericanHydrocarbon.com. Let us help you make your Corvette the car you've always wanted it to be. American Hydrocarbon. KC Trends Motorsports has been the Midwest's largest custom wheel superstore for over 25 years. They specialize in C8 wheel fitments from the top brands in the industry, like HRE, Vossen, ADV1, Avant-Garde, and more. They ship daily from their Kansas City location to all upper 48 states with the best pricing and inventory in the country. Need tires? KC Trends Motorsports has you covered. They have tires in stock from Michelin and Pirelli. Plus, they can help you with a customized wheel and tire combo for your Corvette to truly make it one of a kind. And if you need wheel ideas, no problem. Simply go online to kctrends.com for their car and wheel visualizer. See the wheels on your Corvette before you purchase. Also, there's dozens of wheels and tire combo pictures to look through online to spur your imagination. And their expert staff is there to help you with wheel and tire sizing and offsets for your C6, C7, and C8 Corvette. Visit them online at kctrends.com. See them on Facebook and Instagram. Make any Corvette a one-of-a-kind with KC Trends Motorsports. Call them toll-free, 877-962-5200. KC Trends Motorsports. You're listening to the Corvette Today podcast with Steve Garrett. 
Hey, thanks for listening to Corvette Today. I'm your host, Steve Garrett. My special, special guest is the star of Bitchin' Rides, the man that started it all, Mr. Dave Kindig from Kindig Design. In this third segment, we're going to talk Corvette because, like I said in the opening, I think that this man has a soft spot in his heart for Corvette. Dave, you've done over 270 cars to date in your shop. How many do you think have been Corvettes? Oh, I'd have to say at least 10%. It's funny, as I was uh, sitting here thinking to myself, how many Corvettes have I done? I started writing them all down, and I've actually, I've ran out of paper. No kidding. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, we've had some really good opportunities to build some really over-the-top stuff. And, of course, if everybody's kind of familiar with what we've done, there was a red and white 60 that we had done on an Art Morrison frame with an LS3, and it was just such a neat car. I played off of the original orange engine down to that kind of a detail. Right. And that was such a neat opportunity to build that car. I've made so many great friends. The 63 split window for Rick Cox, still one of my personal favorites, definitely one of my very favorite clients and a very good friend of mine. We spent the last three years actually with him for uh, New Year's. Wow. He's just a wonderful, wonderful guy. He's got so many resto mod Corvettes and he's given us so many opportunities to build some really cool stuff, including his 66, the mint julep that was on this season. I remember. That is also one of his cars. And of course, the silver 64 that we just did some cleanup on, we didn't build that entire car. He's just such a neat guy and I've got so many cars up here. Most of all of them are Corvettes for Rick. Rick actually owns car number one of our 53 carbon fiber Corvettes. Wow. He never had a 53 yet, and he was born in 1953, so i got to make that the most special car in his collection. I was going to say, that's got to be I was born in 57. I need to get a 57 C1 Corvette, that's for sure. There you go. Is there a favorite Corvette that you've built? Well, I have to say that for somebody that's very close to my heart, my wife's father, Dick, we built his 57 Corvette that he's had since 1962. That's the one that we call the family affair. It's black with silver coves and red interior. Wonderful, wonderful man. And we could not be more proud to have been able to put that car together for him. Selfishly, it's kind of cool because he's so scared of the car now, he won't put it in his garage. It's in mine. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) But he just calls me and tells me when he wants it. We make sure it's ready for him to go. But he's such a neat guy. He gave me so much insight of how life is kind of run and how to make yourself something and taught me a lot of skills in building cars because he was a hobbyist out in his backyard. He's got a big garage with eight hot rods in it. And I always jokingly say, though, I don't know what I did to him 31 years ago when I met his daughter, but he hasn't <laughs> finished the 35 Ford that he started back then. The headliner's still hanging. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> 31 years of a headliner with a clamp on it. <laughs> oh, my God. That's awful. <laughs> Yeah, but the 57 Corvette is, I think, by far, I think has got to be my favorite so far. I was going to say, is there a favorite generation or a favorite year that you like working on Corvettes? No, you know, honestly, I've always loved the romance, the body styling in that of the 53 through 55. I've always just really loved that body style. It was reminiscent of something that was very classic Americana. Me too. And was like the counterpart of like a Mercedes Gullwing, which I've always been a huge fan of those as well. So this was the American version of that romance, the that I've developed and designed that we're building with Doug Graff at uh, CRC is basically a carbon fiber version of a 53, but we've taken a three-inch wedge sectioning out of the uh, sides. We've been able to raise the wheel wells and wrap the wheels around the tires. It just has a much more sleek look to it. The first versions that are being produced right now are full-time roadsters. So no top, no windows. The second version coming out, hopefully by the third quarter, we'll be starting on this. We'll have roll-up window version with a Carson top. Nice. Yeah, I mean, it's just the technology and the quality that Doug's building on this body for us is just awesome. 
And these cars sit on a Roadster shop spec chassis. It's all C7 Corvette suspension. It doesn't have a transaxle. It's still a transmission type version with the center section from Dana. Willwood brakes. It's got heating and air conditioning. Even though there's no top, we want to be comfortable. All hidden stereo system. It all runs off of your smartphone. Lingenfelter. Ken's a great friend of ours, and we've been partners for quite a few years building a lot of great motors. He's got a recipe that's the same as what's in the Family Affair 57 of my dad's, and it's an LS7 with LS3 heads and Borla 8-stack injection. Wow. And these cars are 670 horsepower and lots of torque, and if you just keep your foot out of it, the car drives perfectly normal, <laughs> is completely reliable. But if you are going to punch the gas, you want to make sure that you have the car pointing in the direction you want to go. <laughs> and nobody else around you, right? <laughs> and nobody else around you. Yeah, we drive that 57 Corvette all the time, and so does my dad. It doesn't miss a beat. It's reliable. It's got wonderful horsepower. It sounds awesome. Of course, we got the little zoomy button so we can open up straight exhaust. So all of these first versions have that same motor. I've actually got four of them sold. I'm negotiating right now for number five. That's amazing. These are really, really cool. The Roadster Shop Chat. It's an amazing piece. We've customized it to where we can sit somebody down four inches deeper in the car. Nice. And also four and a half inches back further. So somebody at six foot four can actually fit in that car. And that's tough to do in a Corvette, my friend. Well, it's tough to do and not look like the Poobahs are in town. So <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and I'm with you, Dave. I think the 53 through 55 cars should have been their own generation. And then 56 through 62 should have been the actual C2s. So I'm right there with you. Right. Yeah, it's such a cool piece. What are some of the favorite mods that you like doing to Corvettes? Well, you know, I, I think it really just depends on what the theme of the build is. You know, when we did the mint julep, the 66 for Rick, which was on this season seven, that car in particular, we kept the body pretty much stock. We put a set of our flush mounted door handles on it. That one, we put an LT4 supercharged, which is way too much horsepower again for that car, but who cares? <laughs> <laughs> Just keep your foot slightly out of it. Yeah, and that one's Lingenfelter tuned as well. We're 780 horsepower on that car. Automatic transmission, roadster shop chassis. We use those turbine wheels that were built and designed originally by EVOD Industries. Sean and Larry are good friends of ours. And so it's got a 20 by 12 on the back with a 345, and up front we're running a 19-inch by 8.5 with a 245 on it. So wonderful stance. We hand-build our rocker panels on the C2s so that they have paint. They're slightly extended so you can't see the bottom of the chassis. We like to have no reveal of the chassis poking out from underneath the car. We also extend the chin down just slightly. It still looks perfectly stock, but we actually add two and three-quarters of an inch to the bottom of the chin on those so that we hide the front cross member that holds the power rack and pinion. We don't want to see the front of the chassis. So it's just little details like that. Boy, you thought of it all, Dave. Is there a Corvette that hasn't come in the shop that you would love to work on? <laughs> Yeah, the C8. <laughs> yes, yes. You haven't had a C8 yet, huh? I know that we've got a lot of fans out there, obviously, with this podcast that are into Corvettes. And to be honest with you, I've played around with some designs mixing a C1 and a C9 together. It's a mid-engine version of that car. And I really would be excited to be able to free up some time to play around with that a little bit more because I think that would really be something kind of cool. If you could design your own car, your own personal Corvette, what would it be? What's the color, the generation, everything? Well, for me personally, it has to be black with red interior. Yes. I think almost everything I own at this point is black with red interior. I just love that combination. But honestly, I mean, it's something that, it would have to be something that hasn't been done already. Even though the carbon fiber Corvettes, I own car number three. I'm going to enjoy the heck out of driving that car. The only thing that really would turn my crank is something that there's only going to be one of. 
So who knows, maybe the C9X, or if that's what I end up naming it, one plus eight, maybe that's just a one of one. Who knows? That would be cool. Hey, I've got to go back to the future liner that you built for Rick. Yeah. I love that vehicle. I knew it took 37,000 hours, 19 months. Talk about that project because that's an episode of Bitch and Rides that I watch over and over again. Well, you know, I can talk about that, Steve, but I'll have to call my therapist again because, (laughs) 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 you know, that was by far. So everybody that's maybe familiar with some of our big builds, the Copper Caddy was well over 6,000 hours to build. And in comparison, 37,000 hours, you can only imagine the amount of manpower it takes to do that. Yeah. The space that it took up was incredible. We actually built a room with a big curtain around it to where we could sand in there and try and keep the dust down as much as possible because it was in the metal fabrication area. Yeah. We did the body work there, everything. It just was so big. And we had to rent a booth to paint it outside of the facility. Right. There was so much research. We had a wonderful guy that was running that project. He did a great job of trying to locate stuff that didn't exist anymore. The connections that we had with the National Automotive and Truck Museum back in Michigan and Gilbert, we worked with those guys quite a bit because they had already done a lot of the research and a lot of the work. Something that was really interesting is the first one that came back into the public, I guess, back in 2007 was the one that Ron Pratt bought at Barrett Jackson. Right. And his did not have the correct wheels, engine. Most of the interior was not correct up in the cabin in the driver's compartment, but also the inside display was not anything that had anything to do with anything. It was just basically open. Really, when I seen it, it was a parade of progress. I thought there was a band that would sit inside of it and play. Yeah. Honestly, that's all I really knew about it the day that I seen it at Barrett Jackson. As we come to find out, they built 12 of these in 1939. All 12 of them, GM basically, they had an idea of doing a road show that was much like the World's Fair. And if you couldn't go to the World's Fair, maybe GM would come to your town with these 12 future liners and other supporting vehicles and tents. And they would basically set up almost like a carnival, but it was basically a parade of progress, basically talking about man's technology advances. And each one had a different theme. And of course, number three is the one that we restored. And that one was Power for the Air Age to talk about how jet engines were going to revolutionize the world and connect the world and so forth and how that would work. And they did the cutaway on that Allison J35 jet engine to show people and make them understand that it would take in air mixed with fuel, compress, and exhaust out the back and it would create thrust. It also had an aliopod, which is a little experiments like a beaker that's closed off with two little directional straws sticking out midship and you'd fill it up with water put a bunsen burner under it and as it created steam it would spin wow that was basically creating your thrust so to kind of show how that worked it was such a neat piece and the fact that we bought one that was in better shape than most but all of them rotted out it was so much work to put that together and it was so interesting to find out the history of that There's so much great information on the future liners and what the program was. So 1939, they really didn't get off to too much of a start, and they actually were quite different from what the vehicle is that we actually restored. So they had a bubble top, and you can tell the difference from what generation of these 12 future liners because they were retrofit later on after the war. So when they first came out, they were all bubble tops and completely red, and that's how you can tell that's the very first version. We went to war. All of the future liners basically went on cotton balls at Fisher Bodies, and when we were done with the war, they decided to go back with the Parade of Progress, and they retrofit in a flat top with an escape hatch. They put in uh, Frigidaire air conditioning because GM had bought Frigidaire at that point Oh, because originally there was no air conditioning. And in the bubble top, if you can only imagine being in a bubble gum machine out in like 80-degree weather, it's about 130 degrees in that driver's seat. (laughs) 
Wow. So, so by being able to put that flat top on it, the wraparound windshield, air conditioning inside, I think there were six ashtrays and only three seats. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. I always jokingly say, I think if they had baby seats back then for cars, they would have ashtrays in the armrests. But <laughs> anyway, this Futureliner, when we got it, we had a ton of dead bird skeletons inside, rotted floors. The roof was starting to cave in. And again, this was in better shape than most all of the rest of them. Wow. So basically, we started from very scratch, very carefully taking it apart, doing our research, saving samples of everything so that we could replicate. We went through the entire build, even down to the aluminum extrusion on the outside. We actually found a company to create new aluminum extrusions. Wow. Ron Pratt actually had contacted the National Truck and Automotive Museum, the, the 27 auto workers and restoration guys that are retired that took seven years to build that one. They had sent a tire to Coker to have it built with the wide white that says Parade of Progress on it. Right. Well, the only problem is the mold was so expensive. They said, yeah, we can't afford that. You know, we're just doing it for donations. So they sent it back. When Ron Pratt bought his, he found out from Coker that somebody had an original tire. So he contacted the people in Gilbert, Michigan and said, hey, I'll tell you what, do you still have that tire? And they said, yeah. And he says, I'll tell you what, send it back to Coker. I will pay for the mold and I'll actually donate a full set of eight of those tires for you guys. No kidding. So that's how the Futureliner tires were reproduced was because of Ron Pratt. That's amazing. What a story. Yeah, super, super cool. What a nice guy. So what was really cool about that is that the Futureliner that we were purchasing actually came with eight brand new tires because all the other tires were destroyed and just had lost all of the air. Brad Boyoff, that we bought it from out of California, basically had bought the tires just to make sure that obviously his investment could be moved around and so forth. So Yeah. Now, does Rick still have that future liner? No. So here's what you do when you have succeeded in life and you just like things to happen because you can. Yeah. It was a challenge for him and his wife. Right. And so we built it. Mission accomplished. Now what do we do with this gargantuan piece of history? Yes. So we put it up for sale and it actually is in a private collection in Ohio. No kidding. Yep. Interesting. How about that? Well, Dave, if somebody wants to get in touch with Kindigit Design, how can they do that? Oh, the best way to get in touch with us is probably just our website, kindigit.com. It's K-I-N-D-I-G-I-T.com. No hyphen. Perfect. Dave, thank you so much for being a guest on Corvette today. The stories were phenomenal. It's been a pleasure. Hey, absolutely my pleasure. Stay safe, Steve, and thanks for the call. I love being on your show. Thank you, buddy. Ladies and gentlemen, Dave Kindig from Kindigit Design in Salt Lake City, Utah, the host and star of Bitchin' Rides on Motor Trend TV. Hey, thanks for listening to Corvette today, and make sure you check out our sponsors like Casey Trends. Go to caseytrends.com. Also check out American Hydrocarbon at americanhydrocarbon.com. You've been listening to Corvette Today with Steve Garrett. If you'd like to contact Steve with any thoughts on the podcast or ideas for guests on Corvette Today, you can email him at stevegarrettdj at gmail.com. That's stevegarrettdj at gmail.com. Garrett has two R's and two T's. Or connect with Steve on social media on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram using at stevegarrettdj. Thanks again for listening to Corvette Today.